recorded. Thank you. So I'm used to that now. Okay, um, quite a, a range of um, different things uh, this week. Um, first of all, I think it's worthwhile commenting on the, um, the Labour Party front bench reshuffle. I don't know um, every detail, uh, but uh, we know, or at least I know enough, uh, I think, to make some useful points uh, around it. First of all, think back to earlier this year. I can't remember the exact date, but it was May when um, Keir Starmer um, did a reshuffle. And you remember that although he got rid of his shadow um, chancellor, Anis, um, Anissa um, Dodd, who's now chair, or at least he was chair of the Labour Party last time I can recall, and replaced her with Rachel Reeves. Um, what happened, of course, is that Angela said no. Um, you cannot um, um, get rid of my uh, responsibilities and uh, basically uh, threaten some sort of bust up. And we saw Keir Starmer humiliatingly climb down and uh, his authority uh, was reduced. This time, it's almost as if, and um, surely it, it is, um, as an act of revenge, although Angela Rayner was told about this reshuffle, she was told about it with very little warning, wasn't told about the consequences. And indeed, she was up there at some sort of, um, making some sort of speech in front of the press. And the press were um, all looking as they do at their phones and the news is coming in of this reshuffle. And of course they ask her about it and she basically has to, uh, shrug her shoulders and said, well, I'm here to talk about Tory sleaze. I don't know anything more about it. Um, I, I suspect that was a calculated move, uh, that they knew that she would be up there speaking. And they, they basically managed uh, the story. And the story was Keir is in charge. This is Keir's uh, team. I'm no longer going to be held uh, ransom uh, by my uh, deputy. Uh, that, to me, was the first point uh, to make. And then we look at the, um, uh, the new appointments uh, to the uh, shadow cabinet, Yvette Cooper, um, a blast from the past. Um, she's at um, um, home office opposite uh, Pretty Patel. Um, then we have um, David Lammy um, from Tottenham much featured on um, Stand Up to Racism uh, platforms and applauded uh, by the SWP. He's going to be um, Shadow Foreign uh, Secretary, so um, don't expect anything that's pro-Palestinian in reality uh, from him. Don't expect him to uh, rock the Atlantic uh, boat. Uh, we also have uh, Lisa Nandy. Um, this is an interesting one. What exactly she, what exactly her portfolio is, I'm not quite sure because I can't quite remember what Michael Gove's portfolio is. Either way, uh, Michael Gove is in charge of leveling up and that's what she's shadowing. And although Michael Gove, of course, is uh, Scottish, you wouldn't know it from his accent. 
on the other hand, uh, Lisa and Andy comes from the north, and you would know it. So in terms of appealing uh, to northern English voters in those famous red wall seats, uh, she's obviously uh, being viewed as an asset uh, in, in that uh, particular respect. We also have uh, Wes um, uh, Streeting uh, appointed um, uh, health, and that replaces, um, is it Ashworth? That's my memory. Um, who was uh, also the health secretary under uh, Corbyn. And we also have uh, the resignation uh, from the shadow cabinet of Cat Smith, who was previously in charge of young people and democracy. Uh, she was, I think, the only uh, member, and I could be wrong here, the only member of the socialist campaign group. What the hell she was doing in uh, Keir Starmer's uh, uh, shadow cabinet, I hate to imagine. Either way, we also then have uh, Ed Miliband uh, demoted, you sort of maybe-ish. He's lost business and he's left with shadowing who knows who, because there isn't a Minister of Climate. There is uh, the uh, COP26 still going on with a UK chair all this year. Um, so that's an important post, clearly, uh, given the uh, climate crisis. But the message is not about the climate. Uh, this isn't putting Red Ed in charge of green issues and uh, dealing with this uh, existential issue for humanity. It's removing Red Ed from business. And it's a gesture in the direction of business. If you remember, um, Boris Johnson's speech to the CBI, it was about some piggy, wasn't it? I can't remember what the hell it was, you know, and uh, losing his notes and shuffling about the place and excusing himself and blah, 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 that sort of type stuff. Keir Starmer, on the other hand, uh, began his speech along the lines of, you know, the only F words you will hear here are fiduciary something or other and something or other beginning with F, F, F. The point he was making there uh, is he was uh, not going to say, fuck business, which was uh, Boris's line, remember, in the um, around the Brexit uh, question. I'm going to push through a hard Brexit and I don't care uh, what business says uh, about this. We're going to get Brexit done. And he, and he did. And it was a hard uh, a Brexit. So what you've got uh, um, is uh, no longer red ed. Uh, you've got someone who is uh, pro-business and who ain't going to uh, mess around with the N-word. And what we're talking about here with the N-word is over power and over railways. And the N-word is nationalisation. We don't say that anymore. We are the Labour Party. Um, so the Labour Party is making its pitch in the direction uh, of big business. And this is the team. This is the team. And it's, it's got good approval ratings uh, from basically the bourgeois press and uh, media. And they say, ah, oh, but he still needs a big idea in order to win an election. Maybe he does, maybe he doesn't. Um, I mean, if you look at previous big ideas, they haven't been particularly big, have they? You know, does anyone remember the third way? And... Um, Communitarianism, 
Uh, I can't say I <laughs> give a bugger uh, about any of that. And I don't think Tony Blair did. It was just a useful, um, how should you put it, uh, coat hanger um, to put his um, bid uh, to become prime minister around. Either way, the point uh, needs to be made. Uh, and that is, of course, that um, oppositions don't win general elections. Uh, governments lose them. You need to be in a position where the government is losing uh, and it's lost uh, the faith of the capitalist class and they're willing uh, to allow the second 11 uh, to have a go. And that's basically what uh, uh, Keir Starmer's banking on, uh, that, uh, um, that uh, Boris Johnson will um, bugger up and uh, big business will shift at least uh, to the level at, uh, well, um, let them have a go sort of type um, idea. Um, okay, uh, just to make the final point on this one, uh, in my view, uh, Keir Starmer is serious about wanting uh, to become prime minister, is serious about wanting to win uh, the next general election. I've never gone along and I don't go along with the idea that what he's obsessed about is uh, wrecking the Labour Party, getting rid of the left, the left is unfortunately very marginal uh, at the present time. And uh, quite frankly, it does not represent a threat uh, to him. And the idea that you can't win a general election if you don't have all us lot uh, acting as the donkeys going around canvassing and going around uh, putting leaflets through doors, this is, uh, um, I'm afraid, delusional. Uh, you can uh, win a general election. Uh, without uh, the work that uh, the left additionally puts in, which, as I said, it uh, basically amounts to donkey work. Um, OK, so looking at um, the most recent by-election, what's it tell us? This is Old Bexy and Sidcup. This is in a um, Brexit constituency in Kent, uh, traditional Tory. So it's um, southwest, southwest, southeast uh, London, somewhere down there anyway, uh, on the fringes of London. I maybe I think it must be no southeast. It must be southeast because it's uh, Kent, down in Kent. Anyway, the results. What were the results? We all know that the Tories won. We all know that the turnout was miserable. Thirty-four percent turnout. Okay, so what did the Tories get? Fifty-two percent. So a clear, clear win by the Tories. On the other hand, if you look at the Tories in 2019, which is when Boris got his uh, 80 majority, they got 65% of the poll. Labour, um, it got 31% um, of the poll, so considerably behind. What did they get last time? Well, the figures I've got, I haven't gone and looked up everything, but the figures I've got are from 2017, which is remember, when the Labour Party did well, unexpectedly well. This is uh, Jeremy Corbyn and Theresa May and uh, all of that sort of type stuff. Then the Labour Party got 29%. So obviously in 2019, they did badly and therefore the Labour Party is able to boast of a 10% swing um, in, in their direction. Okay, um, and again, another um, um, figure or fact, because I haven't got the figures, uh, just worthwhile uh, mentioning. 
is who came third, wasn't the Liberal Democrats, wasn't the Greens, it was the Reform Party uh, with their leader, I can't remember his first name, Tice. Um, and he came way, way third. Um, so um, no uh, Liberals as in, um, what was it, Chesham and Amersham, was that amazing uh, victory earlier in the year. Um, no Green, um, you know, breaking through because of um, uh, climate. It's the Reform Party, which is interesting, isn't it? Uh, because we're no longer in the, uh, we've got to get Brexit done uh, territory. It's something else. So what that vote represented, I'm not quite sure. Maybe it's just, you know, anti-migrant. But again, I just don't know the constituency uh, well enough. But I do know that obviously in Kent, because of the uh, Kent District Council, uh, immigration will be uh, a big question. Anyway, moving on, um, just to make the point that a 10% swing um, might uh, well mean uh, that if there was a general election, um, that Boris Johnson uh, would lose his seat. Uh, but by-elections are not general elections and you would expect uh, mid-term for government parties to be doing badly uh, in by-elections. So this result is what you would say is a typical by-election result from a government point of view. And I think the Tories aren't putting it on when they say they are pleased with the result. On the other hand, if you think back uh, to what was the, I mean, again, I, no one here to answer me, Stan might uh, uh, pop in, but the um, Joe Cox constituency with uh, her sister running uh, of where George Galloway, I know, was there, um, you know, introducing a com complex, Stan's going to tell me, no, he's not, introducing a, um, a, a, a complex um, uh, into it. Nonetheless, the point would be that that was in a period where people, not me, uh, were saying, you know, is Keir Starmer going to last? Uh, you know, is Yvette Cooper or Andy Burnham going to stage a, a leadership bid? Well, Andy Burnham can't because he's not in the PLP, but you get the, you get the point. Um, I don't buy uh, that sort of stuff. Uh, I don't think he really did face um, a leadership bid. I think he faced dissatisfaction. Is he a winner? Uh, that would certainly be uh, the case. And nor do I buy uh, the idea uh, that um, Sunak is just about to make a bid to replace Boris Johnson. It's going to be, you know, barring accidents at the next general election, whenever it comes, 2023, 2024, who, who the hell knows, it almost certainly will be Boris Johnson leading the Tory party, it will be Keir Starmer leading the Labour party, what the result will be, I don't know. If I was a betting person, and I don't mind occasional um, bets when I'm absolutely certain I'm going to win, uh, I would put it on the Tories winning. But hey, uh, an awful lot can happen uh, between now and then. But the point would be, you'd be very foolish uh, to simply say uh, that the Labour Party cannot possibly do it um, on the basis of uh, 2019. Uh, I just don't think that's... Um, the real world. Um, the Labour Party is clearly uh, now positioning itself as a safe pair of hands uh, to manage capitalism. And uh, to the extent that the 
purge goes on. Uh, this isn't about dealing with uh, a left threat. It's about demonstrating uh, their loyalty uh, to the transatlantic alliance and the fact that Keir Starmer is in charge of the Labour Party. Hence my opening remarks uh, about the reshuffle and I think the deliberate uh, humiliation of Angela Rayner. Now, there might be some crazy people uh, in the Labour Party um, who imagine, therefore, uh, that uh, Angela Rayner represents some sort of left-wing hope, carry on, comrades. That's all I can say. It's as hopeless as John Prescott or something like that. It's not a serious thing. And no doubt that's how she's going to position herself. I don't see her coming out against the witch hunt. I, I can see her providing, in that sense, the grumble uh, factor, though. Um, anyway, in the midst of all of that, uh, from our point of view, unfortunately, from our point of view, um, misguidedly, uh, the majority of uh, law members, that's Labour against the witch hunt, um, last week decided to close the organisation um, to merge uh, this uh, lean Labour in exile network with law and therefore abolish both organisations in the favour of an unnamed other that apparently is going to campaign in the Labour Party and out of the Labour Party. Um, the reality is I think that's a hopeless uh, project. Um, we're told that the political basis of it is going to be, at least in terms of its starting point, the 2017 and the 2019 general election manifestos. Well, okay. Um, comrades will say, we've got to be where people are at. I don't see why you've got to be where people are at. To me, that's the job of opinion polls. Uh, it's not the job of a left-wing a political party merely to reflect opinion. Um, no, we are upholders of a historic tradition. And what marks us out is that we recognize what's necessary for the future. Uh, that in our view, if we're talking about climate change, if we're talking about capitalism, if we're talking about socialism, you need a party with a program that's equipped to do the job and not a party. <laughs> that definitively isn't equipped to do the job. It's crazy. So from our point of view, when I, well, at least when I look at the 2019 manifesto, which was marginally to the left of the 2017 manifesto, I just look at a, um, you know, a list of promises to make capitalism nice and fair. Well, you can't make capitalism nice and you can't make it fair. By definition, it's unfair. By definition, it's an exploitative system. It's also a destructive system. It's a warlike system. And what we had in the 2019 manifesto, I'm sure the comrades will get rid of it, is a commitment to NATO, equipment to the standing army, or maybe they won't get rid of that. That's considered far too ultra leftist, isn't it? But also a commitment, of course, uh, to um, nuclear weapons. And uh, anyway, you get the general, you get the general uh, point that this is not a socialist manifesto. It's a capitalist manifesto. Um, it's about improving the position of workers within capitalism. And um, the reality would be uh, that uh, if by some fluke uh, Corbyn had been, you know, uh, had won, uh, if you hadn't faced a, a coup, 
uh, if you know the sort of dark forces hadn't have gathered and the parliamentary Labour Party had been completely transformed and the Queen had called him at a Buckingham Palace, the reality would have been uh, that the interests of profit, the interest of accumulation, the interests of economic growth would necessitate uh, attacks on the working class. It's simply inescapable, especially in the present uh, climate of. Uh, post-2008 and the pandemic, uh, and the weakness um, of the working class when it comes to trade unions and political organisation and political consciousness. So um, I, I wish the comrades well, but I also consider it, uh, as I said, uh, um, a mistake. Why? Because the witch hunt hasn't finished, and what we needed uh, was an organisation that would fight uh, the witch hunt, um, that wasn't um, a political uh, party in waiting, uh, but precisely could unite all of those in the Labour Party and for that matter, outside uh, the Labour Party in fighting the witch hunt, which is primarily clearly still concentrated um, on the Labour Party. True, you find instances of where it creeps out and we should certainly fight them. For example, in academia, um, our, um, our chair, uh, is an example um, um, of that. Um, he was sacked by a Labour council um, because of remarks made on the enough is enough uh, demonstration where he simply told the truth that the Zionists had collaborated with the Nazis um, in the 1930s. Well, it's just simply a statement of historical fact. In the same way, if someone turned around to me and said, well, the Communist Party in Berlin collaborated with the Nazis to organize a strike against the social democratic um, local authorities or city authorities. I'd go, well, that's true. Uh, you know, then I'd discuss the specifics of it. Was it right? Was it wrong? Is that unprincipled? But I wouldn't deny it. I wouldn't say that that's um, an ex example of, I don't know, anti-redism. I don't know what you No, It's a historic truth. And uh, we know uh, that um, Zionism did collaborate uh, and Zionism was treated by the Nazi authorities uh, in a benevolent fashion um, because they were all committed to Yidzau. Uh, they wanted Jews out of Germany. Uh, the Zionists wanted that and the Nazis wanted that. Anyway, enough of that. So, yeah, I think it's uh, a mistake to close down uh, law. Um, but I do want to make it clear uh, that we in Labour Party Marxists and the CPGB are not going to go in for any, um, the, the, you know, membership were tricked or, you know, the, it wasn't a representative meeting. Uh, we lost and uh, simple as that. And we lost. Why? Uh, because an awful lot of people have been kicked out of the Labour Party and they find themselves uh, outside. And uh, we've got um, an official Labour left that hasn't dared fight this witch hunt. And indeed, when we had um, uh, John McDonnell as uh, shadow chancellor and we had Jeremy Corbyn as shadow prime minister, they presided over the witch hunt. And the general secretary that they had presided over the witch hunt and we were given assurances or the bourgeois media was given assurances that we're speeding it up. We're rigorously investigating this. And when we now hear, um, you know, um, 
people in the present day shadow cabinet, when they're asked about Jeremy Corbyn, they say all he needs to do is apologise. This is just bullshit, unfortunately. He has apologised. He's grovelled and he's still out of the parliamentary uh, Labour Party. So I hope, I hope, <laughs> desperately, I oh, know I'm not desperate, uh, but one would hope just from the point of view of common humanity uh, that uh, John McDonnell and Corbyn will turn around at this late stage and saying that this witch hunt is an outrage and show that they've got some honour left uh, as people who call themselves uh, left wing. Um, after the event, um, people can be brave. So looking at the McCarthy witch hunt and all the rest of it, we all now turn around, don't we? And so, well, of course, I would, uh, I would not cooperate with that. But that's what these people have done. They played the role of um, agents in that sense for the witch hunt. And to me, that's un unforgivable. And, and, and they have, a, you know, at this stage, the possibility of saving their souls. Uh, but it's only a remote possibility and I, I don't hold my breath. We have a meeting um, due, or not a meeting, it's a rally uh, due uh, in 35 minutes. I won't be attending it, but we've got comrades who will be attending it. This is the Defend the Left rally celebrating uh, the contribution to the Labour movement of some of those, and all of those actually, who've been uh, falsely witch-hunted um, in this uh, monstrous, monstrous big lie uh, that so many people have connived with in the media um, and in in politics. So we don't agree uh, with the SWP slogan that it's time to leave. We don't agree uh, with the idea that uh, it's all over in the Labour Party. We don't agree uh, with the call for trade unions to disaffiliate uh, from the Labour Party. I can understand. I've got no problem uh, with trade unions like Unite cutting their contribution to the Labour Party, but we want trade unionists and we want trade unions in the Labour Party uh, to fight uh, this, uh, this outrageous uh, witch hunt. You shouldn't walk away from a witch hunt, you should fight uh, a witch hunt. And you don't lose anything by fighting it. Because don't put all our eggs in the Labour Party basket, uh, as the name of this uh, online communist forum. Uh, suggest we're committed to a communist party and that's the main thing and we see the Labour Party as a site for struggle in the same way that we'd see trade unions as a site of struggle and if they purged uh, the communists as they did for example in one of the elements uh, that went to form the uh, Unite Union that, that's the electricians union you don't accept these uh, bans you don't accept these exclusions so um, there is no reason although we understand why uh, the comrades uh, voted uh, the way they did. I can well understand uh, and sympathise uh, with their position. Okay, um, moving on. Um, ben Raymond. Anyone heard of Ben Raymond? He was on trial and he's just been sentenced to eight years uh, for membership of a banned organisation. And I'm, of course, I'm talking about national action which was banned, if you recall, having mentioned Joe Cox, uh, it was banned not because uh, Thomas Moore was a member of uh, National Action or was operating under the instructions of National Action when he assassinated uh, Joe Cox. It was because 
the response from uh, national action uh, to her assassination, I can't remember the exact words, but was along the lines of congratulating him, you know, one national traitor down, uh, let's go on and deal with the rest of them um, sort of type um, uh, idea. So as a result of that, it wasn't just uh, the assassin that was put in prison, uh, the organization was banned and um, anyone found to be a member of it was committing a criminal offense. And we've already had the leader of national action sentenced to uh, eight years, uh, but we've now got the number three uh, of national action. As a piece of irony, you have to, I, I, I sort of cool chuckle here, you have to have a little cruel chuckle. He's just recently published a, um, a manual of the former members of national action about how you avoid prosecution. So, uh, you know, be like me. That was basically the message. Look, I haven't been arrested. I haven't been sentenced to eight years and uh, God help us, uh, then he was. And not only did he get eight years, he got two years added on of where he'll be supervised um, to make sure he doesn't carry on with his uh, evil, evil ways. Now, from our point of view, of course, uh, we find uh, national action um, as a political formation revolting. Um, it was this guy, uh, Ben Raymond, who invented, pretty crazy uh, uh, word, white jihad. I mean, what a stupid idea. Anyway, it, it obviously chimed uh, with some. Basically, their idea is that um, the races, whatever they are, can't live together. And exactly what Muslims are, I don't know. Presumably, they're a race. Um, anyway, the, 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 you know, biologically, um, they're incompatible. And the job of these organizations, apparently, is to just stir things up and give history a little bit of a push. So they want a race war. They think a race war is coming. And their job is just to give it that just necessary uh, nudge uh, forward. Well, crazy, crazy. Yes, of course, it's uh, crazy and it's revolting. And um, I'm not going to object um, if an, an individual who attacks someone else uh, on the basis of their ideology is found guilty of assault, uh, let alone, um, you know, murder as it was uh, with Joe Cox. We do not object uh, to that. We are against murder. Um, Either way, though, we do object to closing a political organization. Now, what happened with national action is it dissolved itself, but carried on at a regional level under different names. Um, they communicated using, I don't know, um, encrypted messages. But uh, quite frankly, uh, the idea that you can um, get around uh, GCHQ and um, uh, MI5 um, is clearly not, that's not the case. Um, but yeah, we, we are against banning of political organizations. And I'm reminded um, here of uh, Leon Trotsky when he was in exile in Mexico. And of course he was subject uh, to assassination attempts before the final one, final successful, assassination in 1940. He was subject to numerous attacks uh, in Mexico 
um, not least those organized by the Communist Party um, of Mexico. Um, and anyway, he was uh, asked if he would be prepared to go uh, to the United States to testify before the, I've got to get this one right, the House of Un-American Activities as organized, not by the Senate, which was Joe McCarthy's uh, committee, but the House of Representatives, their House, their, their committee of un-American activities. He turned around and said, yeah, okay, I'm, I'm prepared to, to go. And uh, we have, you know, my shelf over there, my collection of Trotsky's uh, writings. Um, you have an article in that of, this is what I would have said because they didn't give him a visa. They wouldn't allow him to travel um, into the United States. And if you read his speech, it's interesting. Because what he was going to say is, I hate the Stalinists. That was going to be his message. I, these people are murderers. They've not only been trying to murder me and my comrades around the world, uh, but they've been decimating uh, the Bolshevik uh, party of um, Lenin, uh, that these people are criminals, um, et cetera, et cetera. But I do not support the banning of the Communist Party of the USA. And he added, I do not support the banning of the Nazi party of the USA, right? This was uh, quite a sizable organization that attracted um, people who were uh, from a German background in the main uh, to it. But, you know, people who admired Hitler, uh, basically. Waiting, of course, uh, the United States um, entered the war, the crusade against uh, fascism and uh, all of that stuff. Okay. Now, we're told, um, this is by the prosecution, that uh, Ben Raymond is a modern day Goebbels. Now, this is, this is sort of the myth uh, that you have these brilliant um, uh, speakers that can you know, cast a spell over the masses. This was the sort of um, bourgeois politics of the 1950s. How comes Hitler came to power? Uh, couldn't have been the capitalist class, could it? No, no, it has to be some weakness in the masses. It must be some special gift that speakers, propagandists uh, are given. So Hitler apparently was a great speaker, you know, just mesmerizing. People would uh, uh, be hypnotized by him. And Goebbels, same thing. So we can't allow uh, people like that because the masses are so stupid. And in, in their own way, sections of the left have sort of bought in to that idea. So I, I cannot but forget uh, the SWP, not one of their fronts, telling us uh, that Mein Kampf should not be available in public libraries. You know, you can get it, you know, if you under the counter, you can get it if you're a specialist. But, but well, comments, I've gone away and read, not cover to cover, it's too bloody boring, but I've read uh, Mein Kampf. And I've looked up, you know, what what does it say about Zionism? Well, unlike a lot of other Nazis, he was completely unsympathetic to it. He said, you know, the Zionists are just the same as all the other Jews, and they're all scumbags and plotters and uh, uh, all the rest of it. So he didn't have a soft spot uh, for Zionism. Others, as I said, did. Okay. But, you know, this, this is the idea that the masses, uh, all they need to do is uh, hear a racist speech or hear some piece of dem demagoguery, uh, and they become... Um, um, trapped in, into these ideas. So it's worthwhile just noting, and I was amazed, 
what this guy got prosecuted for, because he not only got prosecuted for membership uh, of uh, National Action, which is a prescribed organization, it also got done for possession of two books. And the first one, although it, in the my press reports, it doesn't say its name, but I know its name, is the Anarchist Cookbook. Well, it's, I, I'm not sure whether the Anarchist Cookbook um, you know, is full of vegetarian recipes. Um, what it is full of, and I know that, is, you know, bomb making tips. That's my understanding. I haven't got a copy. I haven't got a copy of it on my bookshelves. I haven't got a copy of it on my computer. On the other hand, I have got somewhere, maybe behind me there, uh, Che Guevara's Guerrilla Warfare, which is a manual uh, that includes how do you build a tank trap? How do you make a Molotov cocktail? You know, and all sorts of other uh, guerrilla warfare uh, uh, techniques that I expect to included in the anarchist, you know, uh, cookbook as well. You know, what is so dangerous about the anarchist cookbook? Well, to me, it's as dangerous as Che Guevara's uh, guerrilla warfare. Should that be banned? Uh, this is this is just this is dangerous stuff. And what else did he get charged with? Apparently, he was also in possession of. Remember Andreas Breivik, uh, the Norwegian guy that went onto that island and murdered uh, dozens of uh, members of the Social Democratic Youth um, Organization and just went out and shot and shot and shot. Well, he wrote, I don't know how long, but something like a 20,000 word manifesto that's been um, quoted, for example, by the guy in New Zealand and others as a source uh, for inspiration. I'm amazed that someone gets prosecuted for possessing that because you would have thought it was absolutely legitimate for someone like myself to want to read this document in the same way that I've read Mein Kampf, as I said, not cover to cover, but would look at Mein Kampf to get an idea of what sort of idol, what, what ideological motivations were there for the early Nazi party. In the same way, I want to get my head around what motivates someone uh, like Ben Raymond uh, to actually want to set up something like national action? I want to know why someone picks up a gun and goes to an island and starts assassinating and murdering kids. I want to know why. I don't want to close my mind. As a, it's so dangerous. I might turn into a murderer or, or someone else reads this. They will turn into a murderer. There are social conditions. Uh, that drive people in that direction. And I would say the prime thing uh, that drives them at the present time is the weakness of the left. That one aside, uh, the idea that possession of such a document in itself is a criminal uh, offence uh, shows you what direction our society uh, is going in. And too much of the left are complicit uh, in this narrative. And of course, what's happened uh, with the witch hunt, and which I already referred to, is precisely the left's obsession with Nazis and fascists, either real or imagined, right? They've developed this idea that somehow they are the supreme danger, and that unless you stop them and stop them now, you're going to end up with Nazism. I think this is a profound misreading of history. And what it does, it forgets it's the state that is our main danger, it's the capitalist class that is our main danger, not deluded idiots uh, like Ben Raymond. They're not our main um, enemy. They're a danger, perhaps, 
people we should guard against, but, but the police are far more dangerous uh, to us. And of course, what's happened with the witch hunt is the weapons of no platforming, uh, the weapons of we're not going to debate, uh, we're going to ban, has been turned against the left. And why the left uh, don't get that, uh, it's very hard to explain, but we have got to explain it. And um, that will mean reading all sorts of things and using this thing between our ears, um, which is something that the left doesn't do enough of uh, at the moment, in my view. Okay, so this is just to make the point, because I've seen it in the press, it's clearly not true, it's a mistake. Uh, purportedly, uh, the banning of national action in 2016 was the first political ban to int be introduced since 1945, but I could be wrong. Anyway, since the banning of the British Union of Fascists, I presume that must have been maybe 40, maybe I was wrong about 1945. Either way, this is the first banning we are told. It's not true. Clearly organizations of the left, Irish Republicanism, uh, they've had their um, organizations uh, banned. Um, and I just wanted to say this, it's been pointed out to me. And again, I don't, we don't know whether this is true or not, but we know it's true in Europe that um, when um, the Americans were establishing their hegemony in Western Europe after World War II, I can't remember the name of the program they had, um, but it was about um, if the commies took, took over, what do we do? And what you have in Turkey, because uh, I have uh, written about that relatively recently, is you had um, people that were meant to be deep sleepers. So if Turkey had gone over to the Reds, you would have had deep sleepers who would be carrying out terrorist actions. Uh, we know that in Turkey, they are now called the Grey Wolves. We know it in Italy, uh, that um, there were the far right was tolerated. Former uh, fascists were tolerated because these people would uh, dig themselves down and would carry out terrorist uh, actions if the Communist Party in Italy had taken back. We know it in Greece. And it's not impossible uh, that, 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 that applied not only in Europe, but in Britain. Hence, no ban on any right-wing organization since World War II. Uh, this is potentially uh, part of some wider post-World War II um, agreement between um, the European nations and the United States. But that in Britain, not in Turkey, not in Greece, not in Italy, and not in other European countries, a speculation about Britain, uh, but maybe, uh, certainly in Europe, um, that is the case. Anyway, um, moving on, just very briefly um, on um, the JCPOA, what I ask you, I can hear you saying it, what the hell is that? That's the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action. In other words, this is the... Um, uh, Iran deal. And uh, we've had the seventh round of negotiations in Vienna. This is um, the members, this is Iran and members of the Security Council. So that's five plus Europe. So um, it's five and Iran plus one. And um, remember, this is the agreement that America walked out on under Trump. 
Trump in his um, presidential bid was saying this is the worst deal ever and we're going to tear it up a bit like climate, um, the climate, Paris Climate Agreement. And he did. He walked out um, of it and the agreement basically was that Iran would limit uh, its processing of uh, uranium. I can't remember to what limit, uh, but basically it would limit it to low grade. Now, again, this is all from my memory. I think to have a nuclear bomb, you need something like 90% purity, but I'm just making that one up. Um, uh, and Iran was allowed to process uranium up to 20%, which you can chuck in a um, nuclear reactor for power. That, that's, that's where it, uh, that's, that was the agreement. Uh, and of course, what Trump did is impose sanctions. And the original agreement was basically um, lifting of sanctions that were imposed after the embassy um, occupation and all of that. And um, Iran would abide by its side. And if, and this, was, this is again from my memory, um, uh, and each, each signature um, agreed that as long as Iran stuck by that, uh, they would circumvent sanctions. So the European Union, i.e. that included Britain uh, at the time, uh, they would agree to circumvent uh, sanctions. And um, that was their intention. But uh, America soon put them right. We're the global hegemon. Uh, don't even think about it. Uh, just do not think about it. And they collapsed. And therefore they had to, whether they wanted to or not, abide by those sanctions. So, for example, we know this. Uh, from our um, Iran Workers Fund. You cannot get a penny into Iran legally through a bank. You cannot even establish anything about Iran <laughs> with a bank uh, in terms that it's going to send money uh, there. It, it's, you know, banks just will not touch it. You cannot move a penny. Okay. Anyway, and then we have uh, Antony Blinken. And we, we have him saying Iran is unwilling to return to compliance. Well, you know, it, Iran found itself in a position where America walked out. America imposes new sanctions, which the European Union abides by. So, yeah, China didn't. Russia didn't, at least to a degree. Um, they did their best to circumvent American uh, sanctions, but they were themselves very careful. So, and the Americans are now complaining about Iran backtracking. Um, from the deal that it made after the United States has sabotaged it. Well, what's going on apparently is that uh, what had been agreed under the previous Iranian administration, there is what they call some walking back going on. So uh, uh, Iran is playing, to use an American phrase, hardball. Um, it's not playing um, softy, softy, we give in and all of that. Now, what the end result will be, I don't know. Maybe this is a clever negotiating uh, tactic. I mean, I just, I mean, I'm in no position uh, to judge. But what we do know, and I've just been told this today, and I didn't know anything about it, and so I haven't followed it up, but there's just been an explosion outside the nuclear plant at Nantance, you know, the, the big nuclear plant in um, outside Tehran. And the Iranians say, oh, it was nothing. We were experimenting with some aircraft or something like that. Bullshit. Uh, this is like when an Iranian um, arms dump goes off or 
the centrifuges, uh, centrifuges that you use to um, purify uranium go wild and um, basically um, run themselves to explosion point. It's nothing to do with lack of Iranian know-how. Clearly, this is outside forces at work, uh, just like the assassination of nuclear scientists and generals. Um, this is most likely, or well, it's almost certainly Israel. And uh, yeah, you've got a new government in Israel, uh, no longer Netanyahu, but basically it's got the same hostile approach to Iran. And what the Israelis are complaining about in their own press is that they've been deserted. And of course, what they would prefer is Trump and they would prefer war. That's what they want. They want war with Iran. And what you've got in the Israeli press, and I, I'm very sceptical, I have to say, is talk of uh, doing it themselves, going alone. And um, what's just worth noting in that context is the recent delivery, I think it was over the last two months, by the United States to the Israeli Defense Force of bunker buster bombs. These are the uh, huge bombs uh, that can go through layers of concrete and can get you, um, you know, the, the caves of Tora Bora. Remember, um, Bin Laden was meant to be housed away in some cave in Afghanistan. The, these can penetrate mountains. That's the idea of these bombs. Uh, they may be, they're not, they're not nuclear, uh, but they're sort of, of that sort of order uh, in terms of what, um, what explosion uh, uh, they cause. Now, it's possible that these bunker busters were delivered in order to do the military emplacements of Hezbollah in southern Lebanon, uh, where they dug deep uh, and um, dug strong. Uh, that's conceivable. So in order to destroy them, uh, maybe you need uh, bunker busters. I mean, I, I, I'm just in no position to judge. And maybe that's why they were delivered. But if you look at Iran's nuclear facilities precisely, they're under concrete, layer and layer and layer of concrete to precisely make them invulnerable to conventional uh, bombing attacks. Uh, but bunker busters are a different question. So Israel could do it thanks to the United States. Now, my own assessment is unless the United States gave them the wink, go ahead sort of type idea, Israel won't do it. On the other hand, um, maybe they will. Um, I, I, I'm just in no position. Uh, to judge, but clearly we're talking about a very dangerous situation uh, of where you've got a stubborn, and I understand the stubbornness of uh, the Iranian regime. It's been cheated uh, by the Americans, tricked uh, by uh, the Americans, and an Israel uh, that views itself falsely as facing some sort of existential threat from a nuclear-armed Iran, as if nuclear weapons in Iran are designed to attack Israel, as opposed to don't attack us, we can hit back at you. Um, um, so I don't believe myself that if Iran did get nuclear weapons, they would say, oh, we've got to wipe out the Jewish state. I don't think that's the aim. I think it's about self-survival. You know, it's as simple as that. And note, of course, uh, that the um, elephant in the room in all of this 
is the fact, uh, although they don't officially admit it, uh, that uh, Israel has at least 190 nuclear warheads, as I speak, um, which can all be delivered by aircraft or, or missile. No one goes on uh, about uh, Israel uh, being a nuclear power and a danger um, of uh, triggering nuclear uh, war. Okay, two more items, um, and then I'll finish um, very, very quickly. This is the, these are both from um, Socialist Worker. Um, this is a, a little article by Alex Kalinikos commenting on the remarks of Jamie Dillon. He's the head of J.P. Morgan Chase, you know, huge bank uh, in America. Uh, and his remarks along the lines of uh, J.P. Morgan will outlast the Communist Party of China. Um, and then, and that's the significance of the story. And then, sorry, 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 I didn't mean to say that. Um, and, and it's Klinikos is saying, well, why did he say so? You know, why did he say sorry? You know, um, why did he say sorry so loudly and so often? And then he says, and I, you know, I bow to his, uh, his knowledge on this. Uh, he says, well, of course, um, uh, JP Morgan and Goldman Sachs are opening up operations in China in spite of, um, you know, um, finger wagging by the administration of both Biden and before that of uh, Trump, you know, anti-Chinese rhetoric and all the rest of it. Don't trade with China, disinvest, disengage with China. They're opening up and they're opening up and how well they're going to do that's a different they're opening up by themselves they're not opening up um in partnership which is the traditional thing to do in china with a chinese uh, counterpart so this is jp morgan and um and goldman sachs doing their own thing in china now maybe that's a good business move maybe it's a crazy uh, business move but it's a business move and presumably you would guess that these guys like jamie dillon know what they are doing so hence, as Alex Kalinikos says, whoops-a-daisy, I made a faux pas here. Hence the um, groveling apology uh, from Jamie Dillon. Alex Kalinikos also points out, which I've been uh, doing, and again, hardly uniquely, um, the treatment in China uh, of uh, billionaires. I'm not standing up for the billionaires. I'm merely commenting. But what we've had is uh, Diddy, which is the Chinese version of Uber, uh, um, withdrawing from the New York Stock Exchange, withdrawing from um, listing on um, Wall Street and um, shifting to Hong Kong. And that's under direct instructions of the regime. We've also had, as Alec Kalinikos points out, um, the abandonment of the flotation of uh, Alibaba, this is the company that was um, run, was, I think is the right word, by Jack Ma, uh, the guy that came out with some disparaging remarks about the Communist Party of China and was then retired to the golf course. Um, no more political comments from you, Jack. Uh, you can carry on playing golf, uh, but you're no longer in charge. And there's been other um, such uh, developments um, in China. And Alex Kalinikos quite rightly says, and I'm not going to argue with him, I think he's absolutely spot on, that this really shows you who's in charge in China. It's not the capitalist class, it's not the billionaire class that's in charge, 
it's the Communist Party that's in charge um, um, in China. Now, exactly, you know, how you would then describe uh, the social formation, I don't know. But it, 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 this is not the equivalent, is it, uh, of uh, Keir Starmer in, in charge or Keir Starmer uh, saying to BP, um, well, you're not going to invest in China anymore. We're just telling you. Um, or Barclays Bank, um, or ICI, or whatever the hell these companies are called uh, nowadays. In Britain, uh, we have a capitalist class uh, that basically its business is business. That's certainly true. But we also have a media that's controlled by a capitalist a class uh, that uh, uses papers, uses radio stations, uses TV stations, uh, to peddle political uh, influence. So, of course, Murdoch does view uh, his media um, as a means of making money. But nowadays, worthwhile noting, um, the value that they put on the sun uh, is a penny. It, it's no longer a milk cow. You know, it, 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 there is a propaganda sheet. Um, and I think you've got a similar model uh, with the Daily Mail, uh, that the actual paper isn't where the money comes from it's online nowadays, where the money comes from. Either way, my point is uh, that the political economy of China is clearly radically different uh, to normal capitalism. And I was quite surprised in that sense uh, that Alex Kalinikos didn't end up, okay, it's a short piece, so I'm not making a big song and dance about it, uh, with, his, with an attempt to prove that this made China a capitalist. Uh, state capitalist, because uh, clearly the state is in command. How they actually square up uh, this um, political formation with pre-Deng, I'm not sure, let alone the Soviet Union. I mean, I'll just point out this to finish on this particular question, that of course, when Tony Cliff wrote his uh, famous book, State Capitalism in Russia, he wasn't, a, he wasn't stupid. He knew that there wasn't wage labor um, in the Soviet Union. He knew that there wasn't commodity production um, in, in the Soviet Union. He knew there wasn't money in the Soviet Union. He knew that there wasn't the law of value uh, uh, in the Soviet Union. So <laughs> how, how you actually marry that up with present day China, uh, I don't know. I would simply say myself uh, that Marxists need to investigate. And crucially, Marxists need to investigate it, in my view, not on the basis of trying to designate China a mode of production. It's the interesting article this week in the weekly work by Paul Fleurs. I think that Moshe's article, by the way, article, the pamphlet written in the 70s was very good, by the way. Don't agree with it. He doesn't agree with it now, of course. Who would? But it was a, a good attempt in the 1970s. But it was an attempt to show the Soviet Union as a mode of production. I don't think the Soviet Union was a mode of production I don't think that you, you should classify China as a mode of production. And that's why I'm using the get out phrase, um, social formation, uh, as opposed to uh, mode of uh, production. Okay, lastly, again from socialist worker, headline, masks should be imposed everywhere, quote unquote, or words to that effect. And this is about the government, um, saying that uh, if you go on the London Underground, if you go on a bus, um, if you go to a shop, 
you're meant to wear a mask. Now, I, just anecdotally, from what I'm told by comrades around the country, is that in shops, a lot of people don't. Um, on trains, my own experience is a lot of people are, and I just report this, uh, the, the local paper down here, uh, the Evening Standard, which is the sort of free giveaway sheet in London, uh, the evening one, um, is reporting that people have been fined, I think 30,000 quid uh, for not wearing masks and loads of people are being kicked off trains, loads of people have been denied entry uh, to railway stations. I haven't seen that myself, uh, but I've seen a lot more people wearing masks. You get 200 quid fine uh, if you don't wear uh, a mask. And what the comrades are saying is, why doesn't this apply to pubs? Why doesn't this apply to restaurants? Why doesn't it apply to what is called the hospitality uh, industry? And they know the answer. It's profit. Um, well, I can go along with them to a degree, quite clearly, if you're a pub and you require drinkers to wear masks, you're not going many drinkers. I mean, I, maybe you can drink a pint of beer through a straw. Um, but uh, normally, from what I've seen in pubs, uh, people would find it very hard to drink a pint of beer through a mask, um, let alone consume food through a mask. Now, I know that you can go to a restaurant and you wear a mask until you sit down at a table and you then take it off, and the same applies in pubs. But the SWP are saying, no, it's all the government's friends in big business, and what they're after is money. It's all about profit. It's a bit like football. It's all about profit. That's the only thing the SWP can see, even though lots of clubs don't make any real profit, that lots of football clubs, especially at the top, a vanity of projects. Anyone who tells me that MBS uh, has bought up, and he has, um, Newcastle United in order to make money, I'll take you to the funny farm. I mean, you're just crazy. No, this is about him as a multi, multi, multi-billionaire um, wanting when he becomes king to come along and watch his team, because he can't do it now. He's only the crown prince. He'll get arrested, apparently, because he's a murderer. But now when he becomes king, he's got the immunity that he needs as head of state and he can come along and uh, watch his team play and he'll get fun from it. And that's also the point SWP about going to a pub and going to a restaurant. And we need to recognize, yes, that profit is being made, but there's another side to it and it's called use value. And people enjoy it. I don't know if SWP ever go to pubs. I have seen some of them in my local pub, I have to say. Um, including top ones. So, yeah, I've seen, you know, Lindsay German and um, John Reese in the pub. This was at the time when Lindsay was standing for mayor and didn't do very well. And they were only drinking half pints. They were very sorry for themselves, but they were drinking. And I presume they were drowning their sorrows. Uh, but anyway, my main point is that we need to recognize both sides of this. And I'd also finally say this about the SWP. I do remember early in the um, lockdown phase, uh, lockdown, lockdown, not restrictions, lockdown phase of the um, pandemic, people were going outside and having uh, street parties and the police would come along and try to suppress them. And the SWP led with the um, story, hands off our parties. 
presumably these parties didn't make a profit and therefore they were okay. But if you make a profit out of it, it then becomes bad. And to me, that this just shows you a complete lack of programmatic consistency uh, with the uh, SWP, that it's basically, if the government's for it, we're against it. If the government's putting it forward, we, um, we condemn it. And uh, we need our own programme. Um, and I, I, you know, I would have to bow uh, to medical experts and all the rest of it. And I'm told, you know, from what uh, my, you know, my level of knowledge is, and I'm not laying down any law, uh, that actually when it comes to spreading COVID of the uh, Delta uh, and the whatever the latest one is called uh, Omicron uh, variety is that the place that you spread it, uh, yeah, is pubs, is restaurants, not schools, not outside. Uh, okay, so what conclusion do you draw from that? I don't know. Uh, but uh, it's not just about wearing masks. That's really my point. You actually need your own uh, programme and um, just opposing what the government says for the sake of it just strikes me as rather sterile. And certainly the SWP is utterly inconsistent. That's it. Thanks, Stan.